And I have one thing to highlight, too, before we get into the message. Did you all know that yesterday was Steve Wallen's birthday? It was. Steve, tell everybody how old you are now. 39 plus 30. So happy birthday, Steve Wallen. Steve threw a big party on Friday night, and he had only organized one game, and that game was called Load the Moving Truck. And uh, the game lasted about three hours, and no one won. So uh, that's what we did on Friday night. Oh, Steve won. Okay, the Wallens won. I see. I see how it works. Well, hey, this morning we are continuing in our series uh, asking for a friend, and we are looking at and we're addressing some of the difficult questions that people have about God and Jesus and the Christian faith, because we know that there are some of you who are actively engaged in conversations with people who think you are a fool for believing in God. You are a fool for being a Christian. You are foolish for believing that there is more to this life than just what is seen with these physical eyes. And you may wholeheartedly believe the gospel, but when it comes to the topics uh, that we're discussing in this series, maybe you struggle to know how to respond. Well, we want to equip you for those conversations and to help you always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That's what Peter tells us in the New Testament. Now, I also want you to know that if you are skeptical about God or about Jesus, if you have some questions about Christianity, uh, I am so glad that you're here this morning. I want you to keep coming. I want you to keep asking great questions. Uh, And I'd also like for you to allow us to give you some things to consider as you wrestle with the things that you feel are inconsistent about the Christian faith. So I'm glad you're here with us this morning, too. And I hope that that even happens this morning as we address what is possibly the most emotional question surrounding Christianity. And it's one of the most pervasive arguments against the idea of the existence of God. And it has to do with the problem of evil. Now, there's not a single person on planet Earth who hasn't felt in some way the pain and the suffering that have come as the result of evil in our world. And I have no doubt that when you read the paper today or when you turn on the news or go to your favorite news source online, you will be overwhelmed with stories about the terrible things that have happened in our world, even just in the last 24-hour period, because every day there's something new, isn't there? There's some new manifestation of pain and suffering in the world. But for others, this reality is actually much closer to home than just a news story. In fact, there are some here this morning, and you have gone through things, maybe you're in the middle of something right now that is so painful, so difficult, that there are not even words to describe it. As an example of that, a friend of mine at the Noblesville campus Uh, is in that place right now, that undescribable pain. Two weeks ago, she came up at uh, the Easter service. It it was Saturday night, and uh, she let me know that this was going to be a difficult Easter for her because on Good Friday, her sister-in-law had overdosed and died. And so she had uh, left behind two teenage daughters who were now struggling to make sense of what had happened And so I prayed for her throughout the week and for those girls. And then last Sunday, just a week later, that same friend came up to me after my message and told me that the older of those two teenage girls had been killed in a car accident. And so here's this family 
lost their mom, lost a daughter, and now they're left not even knowing where to start in the grieving process. How do you even begin to pick up the pieces of something like that? And I just wonder this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that kind of pain? What do you do with it? What do you do when suffering comes knocking on your door? Well, people respond in a number of different ways to the effects of evil in this world, but it has caused many to ask a question like this, and it's our question for this morning. How can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? I mean, how, how in the world, how can Christians possibly believe First of all, that there even is a God, but, but if he's there, that, that you would say he's good when there's all this evil in the world. That's the question I want to address this morning, and while I fully believe that the answer you will hear today is both true and helpful, I need you to know right up top, it is not emotionally satisfying. Okay, That is to say, you're not going to walk away today and, and think, wow. Like, now that I heard that, now that I understand that, I feel so much better about the suffering in the world. Okay, come on, we, we all know that's not a reality. And while we believe that there is a lot within the Christian faith that is emotionally satisfying, I think of things like God's love, his care for us, his invitation that we can cast all our anxieties on him, the fact that he is close to the brokenhearted. We believe all of that, but this message is less focused on those truths and more focused on giving a reason for the question at hand. Now, this is something that we call apologetics, and I, wa I want you to understand that may be a new word for some of you, apologetics. We're not apologizing for anything, okay? We're not sorry. That's not what this means. Rather, apologetics is all about the reasoning behind what we believe. It's an argument for our faith, and that's how I'm going to approach this question this morning. And what I hope to give you today is a logical reason for why evil exists and why a good God would allow it to continue, and I'm praying that the reason will lead you toward God and not away from him. And that it will give you hope in the midst of the pain we all experience in this life. How can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? Well, I want to begin this morning, I want to begin addressing that question with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Many of you are probably familiar with that name. Lewis said one time that when you're approaching a topic like this, that it is critically important to examine the assumptions within the question. That is to say that within a question, there are certain things that can be pointed to that the person asking the question assumes are true. And in our question this morning, I want to examine four such assumptions. And I want you to know right up top, too, it's not that, that we're saying these assumptions are right or wrong. I think you'll see that, that all of them in one form or another, are, are uh, held within the Christian faith. But maybe there's a, a caveat within them. But here, here's the first such assumption that we're going to look at this morning. It's that if there was a God, and if he was good, he would end all evil. Okay, would you agree that, that that's the big assumption within the question this morning? It's essentially just kind of the reverse of the question itself. It's turning the question into a statement that if there was a God and if he was good, he would end all evil. And this becomes problematic for people because Christians believe that God is all-knowing. It's something that, that we call his omniscience. 
And so if God is all-knowing, as Christians say that he is, then he cannot be oblivious to the problem of evil. He, he can't be unaware of our suffering. And Christianity also teaches that God is all-powerful, that he's omnipotent. So he must have the power to end all the evil that exists in the world. If he's all-powerful, omnipotent, then he's got to have that power to end the evil. And just for the sake of illustration, let's say that this is the tool that God would use to end all of the evil. The easy button, right? Because if God is all-powerful, then this should be easy for him. Just push the button and... That was easy. Right? And it's gone, right? Everything's good. So if God knows about the problem of evil, and if, if he has the ability to make it all go away, why doesn't he just push this button? That's what a good God would do, right? That's what our question assumes this morning. But let me ask you a question. What if you had this button? Like, what if you had the ability to get rid of all the evil in the world with just the push of this button? Would you do it? And before you answer that question, I think you would be wise to consider one other thing. And that is, have the people in your life the people who you love the most, the people who you care about the most, have they ever done anything that could be considered bad or unjust? Now think about that for a minute. Those of you with kids, has your kid ever told you a lie? Those of you who are married, has your spouse ever done anything that might be considered unjust? Do you think that your closest friends might have something in their past, something they've never told you about that they did that would be considered bad? Because if the answer is yes, you need to know that when you push this button, they may be the first things to go away. Because here's what's true. The only way to end evil on planet Earth is to end all the evil doers. You've got to take evil out at the source, and the source is mankind. We are the ones who are stealing and lying and doing all of these bad things. So if the thought of losing the ones you love the most, the possibility that when you push this button, they may go away, if that would cause you to hesitate in pushing this button, could you also be open to the idea that maybe, God has a reason to hesitate as well. Because here's what Christianity teaches. It's Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 3.10, that none is righteous. No, not one. Every single one of us, every one of us has sinned. But look at this. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Folks, I mentioned that Christianity doesn't necessarily disagree with these assumptions, and I would say the same is true about this one. Christianity does not disagree with the idea that a good God would end all evil. In fact, we believe that a day is coming when God will completely destroy evil, and the pain and the suffering of this earth will be no more. That's the promise that Peter is referencing here. But understand that on that day, every person will be judged. The righteous to eternal reward and the unrighteous to eternal punishment. And we believe that there is a reason why God has not yet pushed this button. And the reason is you. And the reason is me. 
God does not want anyone to perish. His desire is that everyone would come to repentance, and he has held off on pushing this button, not because he is slow, but because he is patient, and he is giving mankind time to repent. Now, why would we need to repent? Well, that leads us to the second assumption within our question this morning. And that assumption is this. It's the assumption that certain things ought not be. When we ask the question, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? We are assuming that there are certain things that ought not be. Because to talk about evil is to agree that there are some things that are inherently wrong. Okay, And we would believe that these things are widely accepted as wrong. I want you to think about this. Have you ever seen something that was just absolutely awful on the news. And then maybe the next day at work or your mom's group or at school, uh, you said, said to somebody, man, did you see that last night? Wasn't that awful? Or maybe it was a story about something good. And, and you said, man, it, that was amazing. I mean, it's just good to know there are still decent people in the world, right? Have you ever said something like that? What's happening when we say those things is that we are appealing to some standard that we believe everyone knows and agrees on. We're expecting that everyone will recognize that this is bad and this is good. And so we say those things and we expect that that everyone else is going to understand that. Or think about the last time that you got in an argument with someone. Some of you are like, man, that was 10 minutes ago on the way to church, right? And you said, well, you shouldn't have done this. And they said, well, you shouldn't have done that. And there again, you're pointing to certain things and making statements because we know that certain things ought not be. And we believe that that standard is widely known. Now, one of the great apologists and theologians of our time is a man named Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi travels around to, to secular college campuses, and, uh, and he gives a defense for the Christian faith. And then at the end of his talk, he often will have an open mic, and, and students from the crowd, who, whoever, professors, whoever's there, they can come up to the mic, and they can ask any question that they want to of Ravi. And Ravi tells a story about one time uh, when he was on a college campus, he had finished his talk, and a man came to the microphone asking the same question we're asking this morning. How can I believe that there is a God when there's so much evil in the world. And Ravi responded to the man, and he said, well, you're saying that there is evil in the world. Would you also agree that there is good? And the man thought for a minute, and he said, well, yeah, I would say that there's good and evil. And Ravi said, well, if you would say that there is good and that there is evil in the world, wouldn't you also have to agree that there's such a thing as a moral law? And the man didn't want to agree with that, but as he thought through it, uh, he recognized that, yeah, if there's good and evil, there does have to be a moral law. And Ravi said, well, if there's moral law, that just can't be coming from inside of each one of us individually. If we all understand what's good and what's evil, doesn't there have to be a moral law giver who is giving that to us? And the man agreed. And Ravi said, he gently pointed out to the man, that the question itself leads not toward disproving God, but rather toward showing that God must exist. It's a fascinating line of reasoning, and I would encourage you to write it down. It's on your notes page. That again, if we say there is evil, we must also agree that there is such a thing as good. 
And if there's such a thing as good and evil, then that means that there is a moral law. And if there's such a thing as moral law, that could only come from outside of the individual, from a moral law giver. And that points us to the existence of God. Okay, I quoted C.S. Lewis earlier, and Lewis was a scholar and a theologian as well. He is also well-known for his work in apologetics, and he just had a gift for taking really complex ideas about God and faith and making them understandable for the average person. In fact, if you're looking uh, for some place to start to go deeper on all of this, I would highly recommend C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Somebody told me when I held this up last week that they thought I owned the oldest possible copy copy of this book. I, that might be true. It does look really old-timey, doesn't it? But, uh, but in this book, Lewis talks about how he actually started out as a skeptic and an atheist, but it was this sense that certain things ought not be that led him to dig deeper, and it moved him ultimately from being an atheist to being a theist. Now listen, it didn't move him to believing in the God of the Bible. It didn't move him to believing that Jesus was that God. It just moved him from atheist to theist. All of the rest came much later. But Lewis could not deny that there was something outside of himself that was determining this universal moral law. And I just want to read for you uh, the opening of chapter number one, uh, chapter one in Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, you hear people say things like this all the time. They say things like, how do you feel uh, or how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat, I was there first. Or leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Or give me a bit of your orange because I gave you a bit of mine. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. Now listen to this. He says he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies to hell with your standard. Okay? Now, I recognize that I just said a cuss word in church, but I want you to know C.S. Lewis said it, not me. Okay? So if you're going to email, email lewis at imdeadidontcare.com. Okay? <laughs> but understand this. Even the feeling inside of you when that word came out of my mouth is evidence of the proof that I'm trying to make, or proof of the evidence, rather, that there are certain things that ought not be. And Lewis goes on to explain that we all have this sense that, that certain things ought not be, and we don't think we made that up because we believe that that standard of right and wrong is widely recognized. And as much as people use the evil in this world to argue against the existence of God, I would suggest that the knowledge that certain things ought not be is actually an argument for the existence of God. If there is evil, then there is good. And if there is such a thing as good and evil, there is moral law. And if there is moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And that moral law giver can only be God. Now, all of this leads us to a third assumption. And the third assumption is this. It's that the world is broken. When the question is asked, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? There's an understanding and an assumption that the world is not the way that it should be. And this goes beyond just the evil actions of mankind. 
And we see it in things like earthquakes and tornadoes and mudslides and tsunamis. And we see these things and we see the devastation that they bring. And we see the suffering that they they bring to people. And we have this feeling that it's not right for innocent people to suffer and to die and to lose lose loved ones in these natural disasters. In fact, why do we even call them that? I mean, there's nothing natural about it at all. It seems like the most unnatural thing possible. Something is wrong with the world. Why? What happened? Well, many of you know that Christianity teaches that it wasn't always this way. In fact, if you read the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what you'll find is that everything there is good. God created the earth, and it was good. He he created the sky and the water, and it was good. He created land and plants and animals and mankind, and it was all good. That's what you read in Genesis 1 and 2. It's all good. That would be my summary of Genesis 1 and 2. It's all good. But then we come to Genesis 3. I made that up, by the way. I didn't do that last week. That was just for you. But then we come to Genesis 3, and everything goes south. The man and the woman whom God created and gave some very specific commands to, they chose to rebel against God. And they did what he told them not to do. And sin entered the picture. And with it, death and decay became a reality on planet Earth. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see what he says. In verse 20, he says this. He says, The creation was subjected to frustration. Now think about that for a minute. It's as if the creation itself is crying out, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. Death and dying and sin, this stuff wasn't part of God's plan. But when man sinned, the whole creation was affected. The whole creation was broken and it was subjected to frustration. Now Paul says that happened not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it. And Paul said that that was done in hope, verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is Paul suggesting that there could be a reason Why God might expose us to the pain and the suffering that are the result of evil in the world. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And again, the truth is not emotionally satisfying, but here it is. God has allowed us to feel the weight and the frustration of the fact that this world is broken so that we can recognize our great need of rescue from it. God has allowed us to feel the weight and the frustration of the fact that this world is broken so that we can recognize our great need of rescue from it. In preparing for this message, I came across a story of a young girl named Ashlyn. And Ashlyn was born with a condition called SEPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. Okay, in plain language, Ashlyn cannot feel pain. And you may think, man, that, that wouldn't be so bad. Like, I'd love to live a pain-free life. But the problem is this. Ashlyn can be walking in the grass, step on a rusty nail, have it pierce her skin, and begin a terrible, even life-threatening infection without ever knowing anything happened. Ashlyn has put her hand on a red-hot burner 
and left it there, not knowing that it was bubbling and blistering the skin on her hand. And Ashlyn's mom said that this condition has caused so many problems that it has caused her to pray every single night, God, please let my daughter feel pain. And if we can understand in this just limited physical sense how pain allows us to know that something is wrong and then to respond accordingly, could we also begin to understand what Paul is pointing towards in Romans chapter 8? That God intends for the pain and the frustration of the brokenness we experience to point us towards something more, something that we need, that we need rescue from this world. And that's something that we need. It's the final assumption in our question today. And it's the fact that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And within the question itself is an assumption that humanity is unable to end the evil that exists in this world. Notice that in that question, all of the responsibility is put on God. How can I believe in God when he has not taken away the evil in the world? All of that responsibility is put on God because we understand that only God has the power to do this. Only he has the power to make evil go away. We caused it, we feel the effects of it, but we cannot eliminate it. Now, we know that we can never be good enough, right? We know we can never be good enough, we can never incarcerate enough people, we can never give enough money to charity to get back to that original perfect state where everything was good. But here's the good news. In his goodness, God made a way for us to be liberated from this world of evil and decay. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And notice here again that Paul points toward the forbearance of God. That, uh, that, that phrase, that word, is also sometimes translated as the long-suffering or the self-restraint of God. It's what we talked about before, that God was, was holding back. He was being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, to the point that he sent his one and only Son into this sin so world where he experienced firsthand all of the pain and the suffering that our evil had produced. And he gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine so that one day we could know a world where evil is no more. And John describes that world for us in Revelation 21. And he tells us that there will be no more pain there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow or mourning or sadness. And the best part is this, we will be with Christ forever. This is the hope that we've been given. It's the promise that I referenced earlier, that Christ is coming for those who have put their faith in him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that when he comes, 
it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good for those who have put their trust in him that, that we won't even compare our present sufferings with the glory that will be revealed on that day. So how can I believe in a good God when there's so much evil in the world? Here's our conclusion. If God removed the evil from the world, he would have to begin with me. But God entered this evil world through his son to forgive me rather than remove me. And one day Christ is coming again for those who have put their faith in him. And on that day, evil will be destroyed once and for all. That's the hope we've been given. That's the reason for our faith. And it leads to one final question. If God were to push this button today, do you know with absolute clarity and absolute certainty what would happen to you? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? It's a yes or no question. There is no maybe and there is no guarantee of tomorrow. That's why the scriptures say now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. God is patient with us, but he will not wait forever. Put your trust in Christ today and live every day from here forward, looking forward to the day when Christ will come and evil will be destroyed and we will be with him forever. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you uh, so much for the gift that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ. That Lord, when we read in Genesis chapter three that, that mankind sinned and we we broke this beautiful world that you had created and given to us to enjoy. That when that happened, Father, you didn't leave us to ourselves. You didn't leave this world just spinning out of control. But Lord, rather, you made a way for us to be rescued from our bondage to death and decay. You made a way for us to be liberated from this evil world and to come into the glory of the sons and the daughters of the children of God. Lord, thank you for that truth. Thank you for the hope that Christ is coming again. Thank you for your patience with mankind, giving us time to repent. But Father, we recognize that, that now is the time of your favor that now is the day of salvation. And Lord, if there are those in the room today who have not yet put their trust in you, Father, I pray that you would make them bold this morning to stand against what the world would say. The world says this is foolishness. The world says that, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Father, I pray that they would come to know that power today, that they would come to know the hope of your son, Jesus Christ, and that they could live every day from today forward, looking forward to the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. We are ready when you are. Father, it's in your son's name that we pray.